0: Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. And by the way, on this podcast, we bleep out diet culture stuff like weight and calorie numbers, but we don't censor swear words or other adult language, so listener discretion is advised. Hey there, welcome to episode 208 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Maxine Ali, who's a body image researcher, writer, and linguist. We talk about why wellness culture is really about privilege, not health, racial objectification, and how it contributes to feelings of disembodiment, how to recognize when diet culture is co-opting non-diet language, the power of language in changing the discourse on health and wellness, and so much more. It's such a great episode, and I cannot wait to Share it with you in just a minute. And it really will be just a minute because there's no listener question in this week's episode. Unfortunately, I just had a major computer malfunction yesterday and today, and I'm still picking up the pieces. I actually even got a new computer because my old computer crashed, and I thought that was the heart of the problem, but it turns out there's other problems with my Dropbox and syncing and like all my files are just inaccessible. It's kind of a nightmare over here. So I'm going to get to it quick this week, but next week we should be out of the weeds with all these technical difficulties and I should be back with another answer to a listener question then. So if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered sometime in, on an upcoming episode, possibly even next week, you can go to ChristyHarrison.com/questions. christyharrison.com questions. That's slash questions. And of course, as always, you can check out my intuitive eating online course for a lot more support from me, monthly answers to your questions, to all your questions, as well as daily support in our private community exclusively for course participants, where you can connect with other participants and with me and my staff for lots and lots of support on your intuitive eating path. Plus, we have 13 modules of content that I've already recorded. So no matter what chaos is happening in my life with my computer issues, you've got that content just immediately delivered to you already when you sign up for the course. So you can learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Maxine Ali. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. I think for me,
1: with my relationship with food growing up, I never really had a word for it other than normal. And now looking back, you kind of recognize that there's no such thing as a normal relationship with food. And the best way I could describe it is that food just never really entered my consciousness that much. I'd say I had a very intuitive relationship with food, actually, in terms of eating when I was hungry, stopping when I was full, but never really thinking too much about if I wanted like an extra bit of cake or just a little bit more chocolate. It was just sort of very fluid and peaceful. I think the thing that was... Quite notable in hindsight was there wasn't a huge amount of diversity in my diet or balance because I grew up with a a single parent who kind of worked very, very hard to provide for me and my brother. So it was a lot of kind of time poor meals, but it was lovely. We had a, a great time with food and, you know, I was just very relaxed and it never really
0: was an issue for me, I would say. That's great. I mean, yeah, what a rarity in this day and age. Did you grow up with thin privilege? Do you think that sort of helped insulate you from any fears about food and your body?
1: I think so, yeah. I mean, body image issues are another matter. I would say one thing. From a very early age, I was very conscious of my body. I think I could tell you from about like six years old, I knew that there was something better about being thinner, that people who are thin got more praise, that people who were in larger bodies were ostracized a lot more. I was quite a small child and I just remember very clearly how much praise I would get from such a young age for being so
0: tiny. That's interesting because it's, yeah, sort of the flip side of compliments like that is this fat phobia gets instilled, right? It's like, oh, if it's good to be small, I guess it's bad to be large.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And yeah, I think it just sort of was ingrained in me that one of the defining characteristics of my identity was being this smaller person. I took a lot of pride in being that way.
0: Did that sort of manifest in trying to change how you ate at all? Did you connect it with food or not really?
1: Not so much when I was younger because I very much had the privilege of I could eat and it wouldn't really change my body and it never really clocked onto me that food was an influence in that way. I was quite active from quite a young age as well. But it wasn't until I was maybe getting to my about teenage years that sort of as your body changes anyway, I kind of started realizing the relationship between food and my body and started trying to kind of harness that in order to control things.
0: Do you think that was related to like body changes in puberty at all or? Slightly,
1: but when I was about 12 years old, I got very, very ill. So I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis and throughout that period because it took quite a long time to get a diagnosis and throughout that time I was just gradually losing weight and it was months of this not really being able to eat as I would normally like to before I finally received a diagnosis and then I went on some medication which kind of caused some quite drastic weight gain that was very notable when I finally started going back to school people were suddenly like oh wow you've gained a lot of weight. And I could kind of tell by their reactions that it wasn't a good thing. And that for me was kind of the beginning of this kind of really fraught relationship with my body and
0: food. Oh, yeah, that sounds so painful. Because also, it sounds like you went through a lot. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the ulcerative colitis diagnosis and symptoms that you faced and stuff. And, you know, I know that's incredibly painful. So to have a medication that ostensibly was helping you feel better. And then to have it have the side effect that people shamed you for was probably adding more pain on top of an already painful experience.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was one of the most fascinating things to me, looking back on it now as a body image researcher and thinking about how, in my mind as a 12-year-old, the worst thing in the world was not being sick. It was being in a body that wasn't praised like it used to be, being in a body that people were less envious of Um, i do remember this one specific time when i went to the doctors shortly after kind of being on medication for a while i was getting a lot better and they weighed me while i was there and told me my weight and they were like oh so you're about average well for your age and your height as a child and my reaction was of horror like i was absolutely absolutely distraught that i was now average and not underweight
0: wow because that was such a part of your identity and such a thing that people praised you for.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: It sounds like, I mean, God, yeah, 12 years old, people are so, I remember being 12 and an image was so everything, right? It's, I'm sure the illness was not fun, but it sounds like the image you were projecting or the way that people were perceiving you kind of trumped that in your mind.
1: Yeah I mean it's crazy to me now that especially like receiving compliments from adults when say I'd get a little bit ill sometimes because obviously the illness is one that kind of it never goes away so after some time you might have a relapse whenever I'd have a relapse I'd lose some weight and I'd be getting compliments from maybe like teachers or or parents of people I knew and they'd be saying oh you're looking great and I would just be like I feel terrible but thank you very much.
0: Right. Like this illness that was making you feel so bad was actually garnering you compliments. It's so confusing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it it really kind of messed with my head. I didn't know. I think I lost what it felt like to actually feel good in your body, to feel in control and safe and at peace for a long time. That was just lost.
0: That must have been so hard for anyone who doesn't know. Can you just explain what ulcerative colitis is? Sure.
1: So ulcerative colitis is basically a gastrointestinal disease um, that causes sort of ulcerations and inflammations throughout the lower digestive tract. So there's also Crohn's disease, which is um, basically the same, but throughout the digestive tract, but colitis is just the lower part.
0: Right. And those ulcerations can cause a lot of symptoms, right?
1: Yeah. So sort of very loose stools, bleeding in the stools, there's a lot of cramping and pains. It's fascinating now just to kind of diverge a little bit. I hope you don't mind. Oh, yeah. But I'm doing a lot of research at the moment into sort of looking at the discrepancies and diagnoses for people with ulcerative colitis based on their gender. And so many people, especially women, will experience a misdiagnosis because around the age they're having all these body changes and it's like, oh, it's just period cramps. And I remember that being part of my experience so much.
0: That's really interesting. So people are not getting the diagnosis they need because it's being mislabeled as period. Wow. Yeah. So that must have been a long process then of trying to get a diagnosis.
1: I think it was about, I would say maybe nine months it took in total. So yeah, it was a, a lot of sort of tests and not really coming up with conclusive answers. And it was a lot of just very chaotic time in my life, I would say.
0: And how did that change your relationship with food and your body?
1: Once I realized that there was kind of a lot of jokes were going around at school, like, oh, you just, you know, you've eaten so much or just like, you know, the standard fat folk jokes, I don't need to go into that nonsense. (laughs) But yeah, those would kind of come out a lot at school. And then I kind of put two and two together that people clearly thought it was because of what I was eating, because obviously that's the only way you could possibly be gaining weight. (laughs) And I just started restricting. I very quickly just thought, well, the only way I can make sure that this doesn't happen when I'm on this medication is just to not eat. And very much became someone who just avoided food as much as possible. It terrified me to my absolute core to have even the tiniest thing to eat. And I almost justified my behaviors in my head because in my mind, I was thinking, this is because of my colitis. This isn't because I'm afraid of gaining weight. This is because I just want to take care of my body because you know how diet culture tells you that being thin is healthy and therefore I'm taking care of my body by making sure I stay thin. So in my mind, I didn't see an issue. It was just something that you do.
0: God, that is so, such a profound example of how normalized disordered eating becomes in diet culture and especially around chronic health conditions like this.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: And I know now you, you research on chronic health conditions too, right, and talk about the sort of embodiment experience or disembodiment that people can feel when they have a chronic health condition like that. And it sounds like this is a very clear example of that type of disembodiment.
1: Absolutely. yeah. I mean, uh, so much of my research stems from my own experience and I feel maybe not lucky, but I would say that I feel like I've learned so much from my own experiences. And this, all of that has kind of come to this incredible pursuit in what I do in body image research and just unpicking the different complexities around why we have such a complicated relationship with our bodies.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious to kind of go into like how you got into this career, right? How you, how you started to, I mean, because I know you were also a wellness editor for a while. And do you feel like your experience with UC kind of pushed you in that direction, trying to figure out wellness and how to eat for your health?
1: definitely I mean I, I could say that I'm the definition of diet culture got me good because I was right in there at the heart of it for about a decade I would say I was experimenting with all these different kinds of diets and then I think when I got to about 18 so I was just about to leave for university I fell into sort of the clean eating culture Instagram was just kind of starting up and there were all these sort of beautiful people on social media saying how they have cured themselves of xyz because they have been eating a clean diet they have been cutting out dairy and gluten and sugar and all of this other stuff and i want to say that it was just for my health but i knew like deep down that you restrict food it results in weight loss that's just kind of how it goes and at least initially anyway and so in my mind, I thought I'm pursuing this kind of health. I'm finally, it, that's the one thing it's encouraged me to eat more, but only of, only in quantity. Definitely not in terms of like, I wasn't actually eating a variety of foods. I was just eating a very restricted diet. And I just thought it was for my health. And that was kind of how I got into initially what started as kind of my writing online. I wanted to write about wellness. Suddenly I was in this very glamorous, very aesthetically pleasing environment where everyone was supposedly glowing. They were very much embodying the the thin ideal or the healthy ideal, as they like to call it, and seeing their praises of how wellness was not restrictive. It was a lifestyle. It was Very much, you know, their whole way of being. And for me, it sounded idyllic as a very impressionable young person who just wanted to kind of feel a sense of control in their body.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense, especially when your body was doing things beyond your control. It sounds like with a chronic illness like that, you can't really control, you know, especially with something that flares up periodically and is not easy to pinpoint. I think it's it's so easy to get to a place of thinking like, "Oh, it's the food I'm eating. It's, you know, I need to cut out these foods in order to manage my flare-ups and I won't have a problem if I cut out these foods." And I think it's so important too what you said about like this thing in the back of your mind of like, "And also I'll be thin or I'll get thinner." You know, the diet culture messaging is so tied up with messaging about health, and I very much identify with the idea of like ostensibly doing it for your health but secretly also having this weight loss goal like i was very much i also have a couple of chronic illnesses that weren't diagnosed until after i started disordered eating to kind of try to manage them or manage the symptoms of what i didn't even know were were chronic illnesses at the time and Got really down the rabbit hole of quote-unquote wellness, although it was kind of like the very, very early days where it was more like Michael Pollan, like Eric Schlosser, kind of like whole foods, avoiding processed, quote-unquote processed foods and all this stuff, but it didn't really have the label of wellness or clean eating yet, but it was like the proto version of that. And just got into this kind of whack-a-mole of trying to cut out different foods and manage symptoms. But always it was with this impetus of like, and I'll I'll magically become thinner or stay thin or, you know, not gain weight. Because that was such a fear I had from just my diet culture saturation and disordered eating behaviors and thoughts. That it was, health was kind of a convenient guise for that. Like it became right? This easy way to sort of deflect attention from the disordered and kind of fat phobic thoughts and to say, no, this is just about my health.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think the key thing there is the fact that health is just so tied up in thinness. Like we're just so, it's so ingrained in us that being thin and it doesn't matter how thin, thin is always better than being fat or having weight on your body. And so it's understandable that even though We kind of have these thoughts that, oh, we're being healthy. Health is always intrinsically tied to thinness. So we naturally assume that by being, well, I say quote unquote unhealthy because it's not healthy, but by pursuing this ideal of health that clean eating or however it's being cast is, we just assume that thinness
0: is the inevitable outcome. Yes, exactly. Like the picture of health for all of these different wellness plans is always thin. Like it's inevitably someone thin is, is held up as like, this is what your body will look like. Even if it's not overtly said like that, it's it's very much implied in the Instagram images of people, right? The quote unquote wellness influencers, the people who hold themselves up as exemplars of this wellness lifestyle, they're always thin. And oftentimes too, often like, you know, white, young, able-bodied, cisgender, all the things, right? Like the sort of mythical ideal of what a body is supposed to look like in Western culture.
1: I mean, it's essentially just all the hallmarks of privilege because what, health is really feeding us, it's not just feeding us beauty, it's feeding us the aspiration that comes with privilege, all the economic privileges that come with being thin, the the greater ability to get opportunities that people in larger bodies are not afforded because of fat phobia. Same goes for people with disabilities just don't have the same access to these opportunities as someone who is in an able body. So what they're portraying there is health but it's really just the guys for privilege
0: yes such a great point it's and because it is so rarefied right this wellness world is so inaccessible to the vast majority of people the idea of buying like bunches of kale and blenderizing them down into uh, one drink that you drink you know as your part of your breakfast or whatever and then doing it again multiple times a day It's just like ludicrous to someone who is living on a a more restricted budget. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious too to talk a little bit about the racial aspect of this too, because you posted recently on Instagram a really interesting post about objectification, body objectification and disembodiment through racism, basically Racial, racial objectification and how that like alienates people from their bodies. And I think that's kind of an important piece of that picture you know the false picture of health that wellness culture holds up too is that you know it is often white or at least eurocentric beauty ideals that are held up as the supposed picture of health
1: yeah definitely so i I mean i won't claim that i'm an expert on sort of the racial aspects of body image Uh, this is really just an area that i've started investigating in myself again informed by my own experience because i'm mixed race And I never really probed it myself until I started thinking about all the experiences of objectification that I received in my life and the way that they always had this sort of racial tinge to them, like saying, oh, you look so exotic or just all this questioning about where I was from. So when I started, again, looking at how that might have affected my relationship with my body and how that might in general affect people of different ethnicities, it becomes very evident that because the norm is seen as white, anyone who is not white is an other. And so we start internalizing this language. We start kind of seeing ourselves as other. And that naturally leads to this feeling of alienation in our own bodies. And we can't actually tune into those sensations. We can't, for instance, intuitive eat quite as innately because we don't know what it's like to just be peaceful
0: in our bodies. Yeah, because there's such attack from the outside in the form of microaggressions, which might not seem in and of themselves to be, quote unquote, a big deal, but you're fielding these things all the time, right? The question of like, what are you or being called exotic and and all of that is, yeah, really othering you instead of saying just like, let's talk about you as a person, right? Not like focus on your body and how it looks.
1: Yeah. And it's so routine that it becomes a point where you just expect it and it does just become your identity. The otherness is you. And obviously, that's really destructive when you kind of think about yourself in that way all the time.
0: Oh, yeah, completely. And it makes it a lot easier, probably, to engage in sort of other distancing behaviors from your body. Like you mentioned a research study that I hadn't seen that sounds really interesting that, like, People who experienced raciali- experience racialized othering or racialized objectification actually have higher rates of disordered eating, which makes a lot of sense given that disembodiment that you talked about. It does.
1: And I wish I could say that I had more research into this, but you know how it is with a lot of eating disorder research is it does just focus on a lot of white privileged women. Unfortunately, the research just isn't there to kind of really delve into more of why this might be an occurrence. It's something I'm definitely probing myself and kind of hope to do more so in the future.
0: That's great. I mean, I feel like we need so much more research into that because, yeah, eating disorders were so, like, for decades have been kind of construed as this privileged white woman's disease instead of acknowledging all the ways that they show up in the world that can look different than how they might show up in a privileged white woman who goes to a treatment center. And a thin white woman at that usually, right? It's like all forms of body privilege. Yeah. This is so interesting, this research. And I want to hear more about your own trajectory of how you – I mean, first, how you got into like the wellness editing world, which I know <laughs> I was a part of too, the health health journalism field. And that is just such a minefield for anyone who struggles and also such catnip for anyone who struggles, I think, right? It's so normal to be attracted to that field or to related health and wellness fields when you're struggling with your own stuff because it it feels like, oh, if I start researching this and become really knowledgeable about this, that I'll unlock the secret. I'll crack the code of how to be thin and healthy and have my all my problems go away,
1: yeah. So I guess going back to how I got into wellness editing then, I graduated from uni with a degree in linguistics, and I was very much like, I want to work in health. I want to help people learn how to eat really healthy I want to be that person that helps everyone just get a handle of their health you know that sort of that savior complex that you have when you think you've mastered food and you want to share it with the world um so in there <laughs> <laughs> so my first I'm uh, very quickly out of uni I got an internship with a UK women's fitness magazine that shall not be named mm-hmm. but <laughs> and very much dove in straight into this culture and it was a culture of disordered eating I have no other words for it like I was surrounded in this office by women who were constantly dieting women who were constantly measuring what they were eating they were kind of trying all these juice cleanses and initially it certainly fed this it kind of legitimized what I was doing as healthy because when you're working in an industry that supposedly is supposed to be disseminating health information and you see this kind of behavior you think well this must be what health looks like and so that completely just encouraged me I would say I was very much just stuck and I was very much just dedicated to pursuing this picture of health so that I could become essentially not just succeed in my pursuit of health, but succeed in my career to get to the place where I saw these other women where they were writing all these articles and they were living these incredibly, I would say, glamorous lives. They were going to all of these very high-end boutique fitness studios and getting all of these wellness treatments. And that was a very aspirational lifestyle. That's kind of the way wellness is painted. It's not just about the health. It's everything that comes with that.
0: Oh my God. Totally. Like yeah, the the wellness treatments and the boutique fitness. That's such a great point because those things are so rarefied and they're so out of reach of the typical person, right? Like spending $30 or whatever on a fitness, you know, one class is just ludicrous from a, it's a absurd, financial yeah. <laughs> perspective, right? And like, I'm sure, because knowing how, I don't know if it's different in the UK, but in the US, journalism really thrives on freebies, right? Like we've got all these, you know, free access to Restaurants and classes and
1: Oh, definitely. It's a it's a lot of sponsors a lot of the time. It's very much there's not a lot of genuine critiques of what you read in but well, certainly in wellness journalism. It's very much just whose PR is friends with, whose editor.
0: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So the the fitness classes that the PR person is friends with the editor of get named, get Recommended and yeah, there's not really any digging into because I mean, I think that's that's the thing right the the critical eye is so missing because the people who are running the media are so in it themselves. That's something that I try to point out to people whenever I can is like you really have to consider the source here. You have to consider that the people who are attracted to and end up rising up in the field of health and nutrition media wellness media are oftentimes the most disordered or oftentimes people who really bought into diet culture's version of health and nutrition and seemingly are, quote unquote, succeeding in that realm because of really restrictive and disordered behaviors in their own lives and oftentimes don't see anything wrong with that. You know, I mean, I for my own early journalism career, I was. Binging constantly at night. You know, I would eat restrictively, quote unquote, healthy foods during the day and eat the way that I thought I was supposed to eat based on the articles I was writing, the research I was doing, and then end up binging on the quote unquote forbidden things and, you know, think that it was my fault and that there's something desperately wrong with me that I couldn't just eat this way that I was supposed to be eating. Never occurred to me that the way that I was telling everybody else how to eat was, was creating the binges, you know? And so I think it's just, you really just never know what's going on behind the scenes for some of these people in positions of power in the health and wellness field.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that comes down to the crux of it. When you don't have people who have actually been educated in an area, if they don't know what they're writing about and they're just almost taking whatever they read and passing it on and it becomes this vicious cycle of just diet culture just getting reproduced over and over again. It's hard to break
0: that yeah, and I think that's such a great point, too of like they're not really educated in science, right? Like I went into my journalism career having majored in rhetoric and French literature as an undergrad, which is great preparation for writing and, you know journalism, not great preparation for reading health studies critically. And it sounds like maybe similar was true for you too, right? Linguistics is a great preparation for a career in any form of communications, but not in how to actually understand and read critically about what you're reporting on.
1: Yeah. So I think that was I'm I'm very lucky that around that time I think there was sort of the almost the kind of exposure of clean eating at the same time where there was sort of the stuff going on with Bell Gibson in, in Australia and people were kind of cottoning on to the fact that wellness maybe didn't know what it was talking about and I was very lucky at that time to meet some really really great evidence-based nutritionists such as Pixie Turner and Laura Thomas, who I know you've had on the podcast, who were very much kind of, they were very understanding. And I very much appreciated that <laughs> as a wellness writer coming at me and saying, okay, this is everything that's wrong. We need to do something about actually getting proper experts in. So I, from very initially in my kind of wellness career, I kind of started realizing that something wasn't right, but I didn't, I don't think I realized the extent of the disorder that was rife within that industry until I finally stepped away from it.
0: And were you still struggling with your own disorder at that time too?
1: Yeah, so it was definitely ongoing because like I say, you don't realize how ingrained diet culture is until you finally start unpicking it. And it's been ongoing, I would absolutely say. It really was sort of me deciding to leave wellness was just the first step it might have seemed in my eyes at the time that this is the final thing i need to fix my relationship with food but that was really just the beginning
0: yeah it's so interesting how it just becomes this like onion the never-ending onion where you're just peeling back more and more layers and sort of uncovering yeah, things I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> that is a great analogy <laughs> yeah you just never know what you don't know until you start digging in right yeah and so how did the the body image research come into your career then
1: so I left wellness I, I had a very terrible experience with my last job with wellness where they were awful, I'm gonna just put it straight, <laughs> it was awful, it was so also so much information that by this time I knew was not evidence-based, so much demonization of processed food, and I could see how this was also just being incredibly discriminatory, like in my mind, the work that I was surrounded with was so elitist, so exclusionary, had no interest in helping people actually be healthy. And I thought that this is just despicable. And so I was so unhappy in this job that ended up leaving after three months. It was very fast and probably the best thing I've ever done.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like you just reached your boiling point and had to get out of there.
1: Yeah. So pretty much immediately after that, I went back to study for a a master's of science in medical humanities, which was I kind of just wanted to figure out a way to incorporate my knowledge in linguistics because language is something I've always been so passionate about. And I really wanted to kind of get the core of how diet culture instills all these ideas through language so I went back to get this master's and started learning a lot more about sort of the way that we have constructed the body the way that all the different symbolisms that come into it when we have this meaning of the body and we have the meaning of health and from there just really took to body image research and looking at particularly people with eating disorders just drawing on my own experience but also all kinds of experiences like just different chronic illnesses and just trying to understand how complicated our relationship with our body is and how it's been so overlooked we have this sort of mind body dichotomy like the mind can command the body and the body is just this tool that we have to manipulate and control but the reality is that it's so interconnected and our body has such a huge influence on our mind as well
0: yeah there's there's so much cross or talking back and forth between the mind and the body, the, the connection really is not severable the way that Western culture makes it out to be. Yeah. It's really interesting that you talk about language and the importance of language in the construction of health and diet culture, because that's something I'm super fascinated with too, is like, How did we get here? What's the rhetoric? What's the language that is being used to shape these ideas and ideals about health and beauty that then serve to oppress us and keep us locked in the pursuit of something really unattainable? So can you talk a little bit about kind of what your work on language has uncovered and why you think it's so important to be talking about the role of language in this in the first place?
1: Sure. So I guess where I typically start when I start talking about language is kind of the idea that words are not just words, but they kind of form the underscoring of our entire understanding of ourselves, of our bodies, of our identities, like so much of the way that we express ourselves and so much of the way that we learn about the world is through language. And so it's really important that we kind of consider what words and what ideas we're picking up very early on. And so if you think about sort of in the context of diet culture, when you start learning about food from very early on, you kind of learn this idea that there are good foods and bad foods. And they might be described in different ways that could be clean or dirty, which is obviously the clean eating example. But we have so many ways of just being like naughty or guilty or there's sort of the, the converse, of the less religious terminology. There's like the whole all natural and this kind of pursuit of purity. And so it's fascinating looking at all the underscoring ideologies that operate within language, and it reveals so much.
0: Yeah, completely, right? That that sort of religious language or the the idea of just because I feel like saying all natural or saying processed those have connotations moral connotations that they carry too even though they're not as overt and obvious as like guilty pleasure or sinful or clean and you know it's a little harder to make that connection obvious to people when you're talking about diet culture
1: yeah, definitely. In terms of the, the all natural one, it's really, really interesting because if you start looking at sort of the roots of natural, a lot of it comes down to this kind of idea that, well, particularly for women and diet culture is well known for obviously trying to control women's bodies. But it's, it's the idea that women are kind of naturally created in a a specific way. So they're meant to be perhaps quite domestic, or they're meant to be mothers and carers, or they're meant to be sexualized. And through kind of this all-natural language, though it's very, very subtle, it's just for reproducing these ideas that women have a place and it's not necessarily a place of power.
0: That's really interesting. It's sort of wanting to put women back in their quote-unquote natural place, which is of course culturally constructed too.
1: Of course, yeah. And then, of course, when you have these sort of natural food imperatives, suddenly they are commanding exactly this of women. They're commanding that, oh, you can't eat convenience food that gives you time. You have to prep everything from scratch. You have to spend a lot of money on making yourself look good. And suddenly, though you don't realize it, you're just reproducing these, this kind of idea that women are less than
0: right and that their role is in the kitchen or in the home and not going out in the world and doing things that have nothing to do with food preparation or keeping themselves looking good.
1: I mean totally because that's all diet culture really wants is just to make sure that women are as oppressed as possible.
0: Right. Yeah, the Naomi Wolf thing of like diet culture is the most potent political sedative there is. It really is. And and that's so interesting too because you know this is a time when Women have arguably the most freedom that they've ever had, and you know, women in Western culture because of the internet, because of the regulations that have been put in place for workplace equality. And you know, it's certainly very, very imperfect, and lots of work still to do on that front, as evidenced by like the Me Too movement and the pay gap, which especially disproportionately affects Black women and Latinx women. So there's many many things to be done but i think as it goes this is probably the one of the times when we've had the most freedom to like work outside the home and do our own thing and make our own destiny career wise and even relationship wise you know the the necessity of marriage is not what it used to be so you know i think it's very much it's no coincidence that at this time in women's history that the strictures of diet culture just get ever tighter. And now the way to be a quote unquote good woman and the sort of aspirational wealthy example of a woman is like, you're preparing all your baby food from scratch and your kids' meals and prepping everything all day long and going to the farmer's market and doing yoga classes and doing all this stuff that, you know, it's like, where's where's your time to actually work? This is clearly like an example of a stay-at-home mom that is being held up as the epitome of health and well-being and like not knocking stay-at-home moms because that's great if you want to make that choice and if you love doing it then more power to you but like it's really not attainable for the vast majority of people.
1: Definitely and I think you've really just hit hit it on the head there in terms of this culture of the being the stay-at-home mom or just the person that kind of is so domestically oriented that that is now the pinnacle of health. But it's the way that diet culture has kind of been so insidious that it's like this elective oppression now among women where people will choose to do that because they think they're being empowering. They think by commanding their body in this way and by molding themselves to achieve this ideal, they are somehow the empowered when actually they're perhaps
0: more confined than they have ever been. It really is this elective oppression in this prison of, because it's also, yeah, it's being sold as this isn't about health or or this isn't about dieting. This isn't about the like diets of decades past, which are so passe. We don't do this anymore. This is just about wellness and like taking the best care possible of your body and your family. And the idea of like self-actualization, the pinnacle of self-actualization is this picture of quote unquote wellness when it really is so retrograde and it's putting people back in this position that women were relegated to for centuries before.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of drawing on that that notion of self-surveillance. Like Now, diet culture can't be blamed for oppressing women. It can't be blamed for telling women that they have to be thin in order to be good because women are electively choosing to do that. Because things are so framed now as, by doing this, it is a good choice. You are empowering yourself. You are choosing to make yourself confident you are choosing a better life for yourself. When it inevitably goes pear-shaped and women end up with this disordered relationship with food in their body, diet culture can't be to blame.
0: That is such a great point. And yeah, because diet culture can really hide behind this language of like choice feminism, which sort of became the like central mode of feminism in like the third wave. So now it's like, well, it's your choice and it's empowering and preying on the issues that people have with our culture in general that are so much larger like how exhausted everybody is right income inequality keeps people like running on this hamster wheel and racial inequality and gender inequality keep people oppressed. And we know that oppression is stressful to the body and actually is really strongly associated with and likely causes many of the health conditions that tend to get blamed on food now and on like the food environment. And so it's this perfect storm of like, we have these needs that aren't being met by our society and this culture of oppression and many systems of oppression that intersect in many people's lives that people are struggling against. And then the solution diet culture offers is like, fix your food, fix your food environment, and then everything will be okay. So I can see why people get so sucked into it because, I mean, the problem is really so much bigger and so much more at the cultural level, really going back to like, problems with capitalism and patriarchy and racism but it's so easy to like treat food as the magic bullet to address all those things
1: i mean it's far easier to sell as well <laughs> like you can't really start selling to people political change because it changes the status quo and that means that certain systems are not powerful and they can't dictate these oppressions anymore so it's far easier to just promise people that food will be the beel and end all of all your problems
0: Yes, I know completely and and in doing that it upholds those systems of oppression, right? It's like just a really convenient way for people to to distract people from what's really going on. And I see this so much in the rhetoric around chronic illness too, where whatever is going on in someone's life to create the conditions for chronic illness and oftentimes, you know, as it was for me and many people that I've worked with, the trigger for the chronic illness in the first place was disordered eating then diet culture comes in with its prescription to change all your food instead of giving you the sort of awareness that maybe the way that you've been conditioned to eat in this disordered way is actually what's really at the root of the problem. I'm curious to hear more about your your research with the discourse around chronic illness and what you've seen in that regard.
1: Sure, yeah. So a lot of my research, initially when I did my undergraduate, I was very much interested in the the relationship between body image and in people with sort of non-visible disabilities, because obviously you get this reaction where your internal self doesn't really correspond to what people see on the outside. So from the outside, you might appear as healthy. You might not embody, say, the healthy ideal where people are sort of expecting you to be extremely fit have this kind of relationship with exercise where you compulsively move all the time but on the outside you do look like your body could achieve anything or that's essentially what diet culture wants you to believe but on the inside you're not feeling that so when you have this kind of discrepancy the kind of the language that comes around it is if you're not trying hard enough if you're not taking responsibility then you kind of get ill it's
0: really fascinating that is really interesting. It's yeah, the this sort of neoliberal idea of putting all the responsibility on the individual instead of looking at other factors and cultural conditions.
1: Yeah, and of course by doing that you kind of excuse sort of systems from actually taking any responsibility. You make it so that people don't actually have to care whether there is a system to support people with disabilities. They don't have to care if there is enough resources for people with mental illnesses because the onus is not on everyone. It's just on the individual who's
0: suffering. Yeah. And that's so painful for the individual. Part of why I started this podcast was to help people feel less alone in their struggles because so many of us, I think, suffer in silence with mental and physical health issues that we blame ourselves for because of this ideology of personal responsibility instead of seeing it as something that so many people have, and that maybe this is bigger than all of us. Maybe this is actually something going on in our cultural systems and systems of oppression.
1: Of course. And this is why I think the language is so important, because once you start a discourse around this, once you start actually speaking out and saying that these are the things that affect us, this is how diet culture affects all of us, how healthism affects all of us, then you can start actually changing the narrative.
0: Right, exactly. And it's so, you're so right that language really is the basis of our ideas. It's, you know, no matter what kind of a learner you are, I think most ideas get transmitted through words, right, through language. And so being able to change that discourse, which is super hard as diet culture gets sneakier and sneakier, and we have to be more and more vigilant, right? But I think it's such an important project to try to really tease out the language that is creating these systems of oppression.
1: Of course. And unfortunately I think diet culture has kind of got the one up on most of us or it knows its power. It knows how it can manipulate language in order to manipulate us. So obviously we're seeing it now in terms of diet culture, co-opting the language of body positivity and size acceptance, but not really because this is about wellness, but you should still try to lose weight and there's this idea that I have that I'm working on in my research, which is the, the non-diet diet paradox, which is this idea, obviously, that food restriction is still promoted, but through a non-diet discourse where it's not about weight loss, it's about health. It's about feeling good in yourself. But of course, you can only feel good in yourself if you are losing weight.
0: Right. Weight loss is still very much a part of it and central to it, but it hides under this discourse of wellness.
1: Of course. And I think that's such the thing where it's like all these people who are trying to escape diet culture are suddenly turning into this new trend, not realizing that it's just repackaged in a new form.
0: Yeah. And I'm curious if you have any tips or ways that people can try to identify that because I do, I, I see so many people who are confused who come to me and say, what do you think of this? You know, just recently in the U S we had, I don't know if you saw this, but there was this dietitian who calls herself an anti-diet dietitian, but is promoting weight loss and saying that you can be oh, anti-diet no. culture and like, and like using all this language that like I and my community use, right. Or it's like anti-diet, anti-diet culture. We're against diet culture, but, then also you can have like sustainable weight and fat loss quote unquote and it's just like my mind has like a record scratch whenever i see something like that yeah. and i i can like uh, you know yeah. <laughs> i can really like feel it in my body usually where i'm just like oh no you know
1: i know it's like a core outrage whenever yeah. i read something especially from someone who is like a dietitian or a nutritionist who claims to be non-diet weight inclusive all bodies are good bodies and then next thing they're saying is, and here's how you can lose weight.
0: Oh, I know. It's just infuriating. And And I can see why, you know, people who are newer to this movement get so confused by it because it has the trappings of, okay, this is like the movement that I'm starting to learn about. And maybe I'm clicking on hashtags and trying to learn more about what's been like written and said about these things. And then to stumble into that, I think, you know, when people don't have a huge amount of knowledge about the movement in the first place, they might be like, oh, is this a part of the movement that I just missed? Is this like, is it really about weight loss secretly? And I know people end up feeling so upset by that, you know, and so triggered by that. Yeah. Do you have any ideas of like how people can sort of tease apart and recognize diet culture in those sneaky forms?
1: I think the most telling thing is really when you have these dichotomies of Food. So whether it's good or bad food, or if it's just saying, oh, these are healthy foods, these are not. Or even even sometimes I kind of question the whole, this is nutritious food and this is not. Because nutrition does uphold this place of higher moral stature. And people know this. And so kind of sometimes when trying to justify this kind of discrepancy between food, it implicitly destabilizes the kind of neutral approach that you want to be taking when you're having this neutral View of food. So, yeah, always the dichotomies, I think, really stand out. I think, honestly, whenever there's excessive talk of like carbs or protein or just different nutrients, because it's such a telling thing where people who have this excessive knowledge of nutrition tend to be ones who adopt disordered eating patterns. And of course, that's not to say everyone does, but it is a trend where we can see people who have these sort of heightened understanding of food are also the ones that are more likely to be overanalyzing what they eat to be kind of mentally calculating things and it's not necessarily just calorie counting but kind of just thinking oh did I eat carbs this morning did I have enough protein here and there and it's all these little thoughts that you don't realize is diet culture
0: talking to you oh that's such a great point it is so because again it's that Moral hierarchy, right? Where like carbs are seen as bad and protein seen as good. So the way that you're calculating out those things and being sort of like, "Oh, am I allowed to have carbs again today?" or you know, at this meal when I had it at the last meal, or do I need more protein? Like that also has moral. That's giving food this moral value when you might not even recognize that you're doing that.
1: Yeah, and I think also one of my last things that i always tell people is kind of question the privileging of healthy because of course not everyone can be healthy healthy is something that comes from having a whole range of other socioeconomic privileges as well that we don't most people aren't it just it's just not within their control and so when you see people kind of campaigning that oh you can stop dieting and be healthy you can eat intuitively and be healthy I find this conflation quite uncomfortable because, of course, it's not necessarily the case. The intention is that you find a peaceful relationship with food where the kind of turmoil of disordered eating isn't ruining your life. But healthy, you know, it's that kind of idea where people confuse health at every size for healthier every size, which is not the same, but people misunderstand it. And I think that's the hallmark of sort of non well diet culture disguising itself as non-diet by privileging a certain type of body whether it's thin whether it's healthy it's just putting this body on a pedestal and making it a goal instead of treating all bodies as equal
0: yes and healthy is such a subjective term right it's so culturally constructed and what does that even mean you know for someone like for us with chronic illnesses it's like i'm never going to be disease free but you know, health can take many different forms, and we can construe it as something that's a resource that's available to whatever extent we want to invest in it, but not something that is like a hierarchy to judge ourselves by or to a binary to say healthy versus unhealthy.
1: Yeah. And of course, your health status should not affect your moral status. Like people should not be judged based on whether they're good or bad because of their health status. I mean, it's ridiculous that they are, but.
0: Yeah, completely. And that, I mean, that goes back to healthism, right? Where you're talking about the kind of philosophy that holds health up as the supreme moral value and excludes people based on their perceived lack of lack of health, which is just, you know, I think that's the aspect of diet culture that's really coming to the fore since the turn of the millennium, you know, and that, that aspect of diet culture that's trying to disguise the other fatphobic roots of diet culture is this healthism. And, it's, and of course, weight is tied up with perceived health in this healthist view. So it's like, well, of course you want to lose weight, or of course you're going to be thin in order to be healthy. And healthy is the supreme value that you could hold. And if you're not quote unquote healthy, then something is dreadfully wrong with you at like a moral level. Yeah, exactly. It's just another system of oppression, another way of judging certain people and as less valuable and less worthy than others yeah and it's so stigmatizing yes and all of us really have some type of health condition i would say that or the vast majority of people anyway that have i mean
1: definitely (laughs) i mean there's so many things that are construed as health conditions that we all experience just as especially as women you know there's all sorts of things that we go through every day that are painted as health conditions that may play a role in our lives in terms of our health but to kind of take health as an objective value is just incredibly misleading
0: right and and yeah it's like if so many people have these health conditions or what are painted as health conditions then is that really something to be pathologized or is it just part of being human to have our bodies have certain levels of functioning that differ throughout our lives or differ from person to person because healthism really is an ableist philosophy too right it devalues anyone who has a disability or perceived disability yeah it's such a such a interesting rabbit hole to go down this idea of like i know wellness and how it's construed and i love that you're doing this work because i think there's too few people out there focusing on the intersections of like wellness culture and diet culture and really identifying how wellness supposed wellness culture is actually just A new form of diet culture in disguise. I think there's a lot of people are maybe starting to get the message that body size doesn't equal health and like very imperfectly getting that message in a lot of cases. But I think less explored, less deeply explored is the idea that quote unquote wellness, you know, we're not just saying like it's okay to be healthy or it's okay to be larger bodies as long as you're healthy, but that's actually part of diet culture too. That message is problematic in and of itself.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So yes, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing.
1: (laughs) Oh, no, thank you so much. I mean, I'm hugely inspired by what you do. Right from before I even went and did my master's, I was listening to your podcast and just nodding along all your incredible guests and just being like, yes, these are speaking my language.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad. And I'm curious how like your own relationship with food has changed too in that process.
1: Well, definitely just unpicking kind of all these internalized biases I had around food sort of thinking about if I was afraid of something well why am I afraid is it because that food is genuinely bad is it because of the ideologies that surrounding it kind of unpicking my internalized phobia my internalized healthism I guess in terms of thinking okay even if I don't feel great that doesn't make me a bad person and and that has just transformed my relationship with food and transformed my relationship with my body
0: yeah. And that, that idea of even if I don't feel great, that doesn't make me a bad person is so liberating, right? Because it's definitely, you don't have to obsess over your symptoms and try to connect it to like what you ate and have it be this thing of like your own personal responsibility for making sure that you eat quote unquote perfectly all the time to ever avoid feeling bad. It's a much more humane and human way of seeing things to say like, you know, maybe sometimes I am going to feel bad and that's okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And kind of that's the beauty of intuitive eating is you're in s- so in sync with your body and maybe not all the time. Sometimes there are occasions where, you know, you're sitting at your desk and you're maybe not thinking about what you're eating so much because that's life and you have to be compassionate towards that as well. But just knowing that maybe just whatever I eat, as long as I'm enjoying it, as long as it's what I choose to do and I'm not being influenced by all these external factors that are telling me that I should and shouldn't do that. That to me is so empowering, regardless of how I feel.
0: Yes. Yeah. Cause you don't need to be judged. Like judging by, you know, how you feel is just another kind of external value that diet culture has created, where it's like, obsess over exactly how bloated you are after this type of food and what kind of digestion are you having and look at your poop and you know all this stuff that's just like way too much focus it's too much I
1: mean most people do not need to be concerned like bodies do things bodies are not these kind of smooth working (laughs) operative machines they kind of have their little blips and every now and then they'll do something gross and that's awesome
0: (laughs) totally yeah that that's a really like humane way of seeing it too, is that bodies are not machines, and we just need to give them some grace and ability to do their quirky things, yeah well, tell us where people can find out more about your work and just delve into into your world ah uh, sure. so um, I'm
1: mostly on Instagram. I kind of post a lot about language and health, a lot of sort of linguistic theories, research articles, everything that I write about i very passionate about making sure that I have citations everywhere because I know that people love to read more into these subjects. I certainly do. And I'm very appreciative when people kind of provide resources. So hope I can be that. But yeah, I'm on Instagram. Just my name is Maxine Ali occasionally you'll find me on twitter kind of ranting about whatever i've seen weight watchers do i feel like that's <laughs> the sole purpose of my twitter <laughs> um and i also do some i still do some journalism every now and then but that will usually be posted up on my instagram where i'll share if i've written an article i've written some articles about sort of the relationship between language and body image i'm doing some more coming out soon about chronic illness and language and how that affects our relationship with our bodies so yeah the I'll just keep everyone posted on social media.
0: That's great. I love your Instagram and I love that you have those citations too, because it's such a great resource. And I'm one of those people who really appreciates being able to delve into the science and oh thank you. Certain contexts, of course. There's like context for science and context for just talking about human emotions and needs and stuff. But I love having that, those resources available to delve into further. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's really great talking with you.
1: it was lovely to talk to you. Thank you.
0: So that is our show. Thanks again so much to Maxine Ali for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical guidance to help you get started on your own anti-diet path, you can grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food, by going to Christy slash strategies. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. Also, if you like this podcast and you want to share it with friends and family so that more people get the anti-diet message, please subscribe and help them subscribe by going to christyharrison.com slash subscribe. There you'll find all the places where you can subscribe all the different podcatchers as they call them for you to subscribe to the podcast and you can also leave a nice rating and review in your podcast provider of choice or podcatcher of choice that is a great way to help new listeners discover us and i also really appreciate getting the nice messages This episode of Food Psych was brought to you by my forthcoming book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is available for pre-order now at christyharrison.com slash book. That's christyharrison.com slash book. Be sure to pre-order it so that you get it as soon as it drops on December 24th. And when you pre-order, it also helps get the book on bestseller lists, which helps other people discover the anti-diet message and therefore helps change the world in some small way. So check it out and pre-order now at com slash book. A big thanks, as always, to our editor and sound engineer, Mike Lalonde, who is having to work extra hard on this week's episode because I am in the midst of so many technical difficulties and have had a lot of edits to make on this intro and outro. So thanks, Mike. And thanks also to Vinci Chui, our community and content associate, and Julianne Watasek, our administrative assistant, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing the show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the theme song you're hearing behind me now is by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched.